Welcome. This is episode two. It's called The Making of a Mystic with Kevin Sweeney of season four, which is called This New Space. And before we jump into our conversation with our friend Kevin Sweeney, a couple of things. We want to talk about a couple of things that are going on. One, we have a new audio that we have out on our website, and it's called Raising Humans. And it's a parenting audio on observations that uh, Jen and I have made over the years. It's, it's observations and commentary on what we've seen as not only those who are raising three sons who are now in high school, middle school, and elementary school, but also between various um, settings so from um, teaching in a public school system to running youth groups to leading families in a church setting for 19 years and obviously raising three humans of our own, we've noticed there are similar questions that arise when it comes to parenting. Like, what do we do with social media and phones? How do we talk about sex with our kids? How do we not pass on unhealthy cycles from our past? How do we help our kids develop a healthy faith and spirituality in their lives, whether we're a part of a traditional faith system or institution or culture or church? Or if we're not, how do we help our kids integrate and take on a faith and a life of their own. This audio is going to encourage you in a path of intentionality with your kids, show you how to value your relationship first with your kids, and really address difficult parenting issues to help equip and empower you in your parenting journey. And so we all feel inadequate at times, of course, and there's no such thing as perfect parents. There's no perfect families. There's no perfect kids. But you have what you need, and you're not alone on the journey. And you can raise loving, wholehearted humans that make a better world. And so this, this audio that we have is five hours. It's got 23 chapters, and we're so excited about it and excited for you to check it out. So it's up on the site. We've also been doing a lot of sessions um, with our coaching, and we wanted to share about that. So we've been doing spiritual growth coaching, which is somewhere between pastoral guidance meets spiritual direction meets counseling and holding an empathetic listening space. And basically... We sit down and we collaborate and discern together what is the spirit, what is God doing in your life, and then help create just a space, a safe space for you to process your faith, your doubts, your questions, and then discern next steps for your life. So it can be helpful when you feel stuck or when you want to keep growing in your spiritual life, but you don't know how, when you feel like you don't fit within the boundaries of an institution, but you still want to lean into your faith. When you desire to take a next step, but you don't know what that could be and you need clarity, when your faith has evolved and you desire some sort of like judgment-free space to process that, when you have doubts or you have questions about God or, or how the Bible has been interpreted and you need some guidance and you need, you need like a safe space to talk about it, or when you're just, you know, finding truth and spaces outside of your traditional faith upbringing, but you aren't actually sure how to integrate that truth into your life. So yeah, it's just been a really powerful space for people and for, for us too. It's been really it's fun. so life-giving. Such a joy for us to do. So, And we've been doing other kinds of coaching as well. Another type of coaching that we've been doing is what we're calling relationship coaching. And while all, all of our coaching is obviously spiritual because you can't separate spiritual from any part of your life, uh, we've been specifically working with dating, engaged, married couples and families that are looking to heal emotionally or wanting some extra support or just like a like a checkup or a check-in as they're 
coming out of this last pandemic season and stepping into a new season of life. I know that in our own life and marriage, like check-ins and check-ups like this have been really helpful and brought, have brought us life. And I know that for those who we've been meeting with, it's brought them a ton of life as well. And even families with kids that are looking for some extra support and encouragement as they're raising their own humans. So um, that's been just super fun. And you can check that stuff out on the site and uh, explore more about it there. All right. So we are in season four. And this season is about this new space. And we're calling it this new space. And it's basically about this new space that we're finding ourselves in in, in every way, coming in to this new space, I guess, out of a pandemic, um, although we're still somewhat in it, something new is happening. And so this new space that we're finding ourselves in, it's evolving. It's not static. It's this evolving, constantly growing space that we're finding ourselves in relationally, politically, emotionally, and economically, technologically, <laughs> racially, spiritually, but in this season, we're primarily focusing on and talking about this new spiritual landscape that we're finding ourselves in. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a massive decline of religious identity and people stepping out of familiar traditional institutional systems and settings. And a lot of people are finding themselves as like religious nomads. And yet at the same time, there's simultaneously a rise um, and people that are searching for knowledge about God, people that are seeking out spiritual practices, people that want to serve the world, that want to give themselves to the world. And, and we're talking about the, the universal pattern of human spiritual growth and transformation that's currently unfolding in our world. And the cycle that we're in right now is one that's happened again and again throughout history. We're talking about the beautiful things that are being birthed in this new space that we're all finding ourselves in. And we're going to be talking to friends and leaders that are writing and speaking and innovating in this space as well. So that's what we're going to do in this episode. And we are speaking with the infamous Kevin <laughs> that Phil always talks about on the podcast. Kevin and his wife, Christine, happen to be some of our dearest, dearest friends. We love and these people. They're the ones who literally called us every day for months when we were transitioning out of our roles of leading the church. They're the kind of friends whom you know would just like hop on a plane and fly across the ocean if we needed them. I mean, they, we call them our junk drawer friends. <laughs> it's the people that you actually let you, you let see your junk drawers and you actually don't care. That's our junk drawer friends. And so Kevin is the founder, a co-founder and lead pastor of Imagine Church, an urban church in Honolulu that's welcoming of all people, that sees an imagination as the key to the future, chooses authenticity over performance, substance over hype, and quality over quantity. And we've spent so much time with that community, and we just adore those people. Yeah, Kevin is also the host of the podcast, The Church Needs Therapy. He's the author of the forthcoming books, The Making of a Mystic, My Journey with Mushrooms, My Life as a Pastor, and Why It's Okay for Everyone to Relax, that will be out on May 31st, and The Joy of Letting Go, which will be out in January of 2023 next year, both in choir publishing. You're going to want to run out and get a copy of both of these books as they come out, because Kevin is a thoughtful, insightful, funny human, and you're going to want to hear what he has to say because he practices what he preaches and we've seen it and he lives this stuff out. He's the real deal. And so without further ado, this is our conversation with Kevin. Kevin, 
Sweeney, all the way from Hawaii. Welcome to our podcast. I've been wanting to do this for a very long time. Thank you for joining no, us. No, don't, don't, don't start off with patronizing me, dude. <laughs> I, I, I hit you guys up about this. I, I reached out. You're a liar. No, you didn't. You're a liar. You tell <laughs> lies now. Um, no, it's good. It's man, it's, it, it's cool because in the morning when I have these, like on Thursday when I had a bunch, my first was at six thirty a.m. here because you know the time. Oh, yeah, difference. the time change. Yeah. But I, it's it's cool for me waking up and it's like my first energy is to like do this with people. And so now with you guys, it's, yeah, I'm happy to be here. That's really fun. There's a, there's a fun energy in doing these conversations and then there's just a whole different level when it's a really dear friend. Because mm. you just laugh together. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. That's why you guys, you know, you feel free. You can go off on all the rants you want. Don't be <laughs> self-conscious about talking too much. We're just here hanging out. <laughs> Just, I will steer it back to my book somehow, but then also we can just keep talking. Okay, speaking of. It's a good starting point. You wrote a book. I know, right? Which we are so excited about. I know this was, I mean, you think about it two years ago, right now, when the sh- we were just in the first like two weeks of the shutdown. And I had no intentions of writing during the pandemic, during the shutdown, at that point in my life, I, it wasn't even on the table. I mean, it was like a possibility, you know, you kind of carry with you, but it wasn't like a conscious thing. And, you know, life doesn't always work out like this. I know this might sound like overly romanticized, but I was in the mountains here on Oahu in Honolulu, where I live for listeners don't know. And I was in a time of silence up there. And in that time of silence, it was like a snap of a fingers and I saw it and I thought, that's a book. Hmm. I saw it all in an instant. And I went home and like obsessively, like I've never been so singularly focused and obsessed on one thing creatively my whole life. And I went home and however many months went by and I was like, the book's done. What did it look so like? It was, when it you was saw special. It. What did it look like? You know what I saw? I saw because if you look at if you look at the book, like the book tells defining moments in my own story. So, you know, the title of the book for people listening, The Making of a Mystic. And then the subtitle is My Journey with Mushrooms, My Life as a Pastor and Why It's Okay for Everyone to Relax. And so the journey with mushrooms is like my story on the path towards this spontaneous awakening moment with God that I had at 18. So, you know, the book is like existential crisis at 17, mushrooms as a spiritual guide, and then leading into this awakening moment. But the rest of the book, when I say my life as a pastor, it's it's all different kinds of wisdom of the everyday, right? It's the mysticism of everyday. So the book is about non-dual seeing, but it's also about choosing your kids over building a platform right? It's about pastoring from a creative and a liberated place that knows we have what we sometimes seek out of what we are creating, right? So it's about being liberated by this cosmic vision and still paying attention to and loving the concrete person next to you. So it's all like not disconnected, but distinct pieces, distinct parts of the wisdom journey that are connected as a whole. So In the moment of silence, I just saw, oh, this book isn't one thing. It's many things. Mm. But it's also the discovery that the many things are actually all one thing. 
So I could just see like the different chapters where it's not like one sustained argument throughout the book, you know, for yeah. someone's like, I'm writing about this. It was sure. just, this is what I want to give to people right now that I think is unique and special that flows out of the actual story of my life. Yeah. It's very autobiographical, yeah. which I love. It's like mm. your story's fascinating also, by the way, mm-hmm. but I love, you said, um, in the description, it talks about how this book isn't another book about deconstructing your faith. And I love that. But can you tell us about that? Like, what do you mean by that? Well, I think on the the initial book proposal, and I think on the press release that was sent out, that I sent out, it, the quotes like, when everyone's talking about deconstruction, something in their faith, I don't remember exactly, in their faith falling apart. This book's written from like the, the light and joy and freedom on the other side. Mm-hmm. And for me, the place I'm writing from is I'm not even close to being in that first paradigm shifting, somewhat traumatizing, which I totally understand, challenging, working through the anger and confusion of rethinking your life and faith for the first time on a drastic level. Like personally, my like my actual energy is not there. That is a moment I have gone through that initial stage. Also, when you zoom out, you can have the wisdom to know that when people talk about deconstruction, you're like, that is one movement. That is a movement from one stage to the next when we look at developmental theories or whatever. And you're also like, there's going to be more. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, there there could be more. There could be more if you keep evolving and growing. Right. So for me, my energy is in such a different place where I'm like, I'm not the person who's in that part of the journey going through those mountains, who's like struggling with that part. I'm in a different place in my life where I'm like, I'm not personally that focused on talking about how to fight and struggle through that part of the journey. What I'm doing is giving people a glimpse and a vision of what's ahead. You know, there's this, after that part's over, which you have to go through, now what? Well, now there's a journey of joy. There's still a journey of compassion. There's still a journey to create. There's still a journey where now that I'm done fighting with the church here, there's just life and there's joy and there's all of this goodness that's out here. And I'm sharing with people what I see out there. And that's what I'm inviting people into. Because eventually when that transitional period is over, life just keeps going. Mm-hmm. And it's very, a lot of people it's sometimes we're very clear on what we're saying no to without having the clarity of what's the next big yes. And what I'm saying is, Hey, I can, I I can help people there. I understand it and it's important, but also after that transitional period, there's this other giant, yes, the spirit's inviting us into, which is no longer about fighting the church. It's about embracing and enjoying and creating life. And so that's just where I'm writing from. So well, that's what I have to give to people, yeah. A very unique place from a lot of the voices that are loud right now in that sort mm. of world of post whatever you'd call it. I, I, I want to be careful mm. to label that. But I think what a lot of the voices that I'm hearing or seeing are like still angry and raging mm. against the church or against whatever institutional faith they came out of. And they just kind of got to the edge of it, turned around, and they're just like losing it on it, but they never quite went past it. So they're still defining mm. themselves according to that thing, but from a 
frustrated mm. side of it, or yeah. they took a step past that and almost landed in more of an empathetic place of, I don't even know what to believe anymore. Mm. And now I like mm. a, like the dark night of that, you know, that liminal transition where you said no, but the next hasn't come. And what's unique about you is you, you started your church out of the place on the other side of that. Mm. So the thing was always there. And, and most yeah. people didn't have the, the language to see it. They just would say, this is different. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, my, my wife and I started our church, Imagine at 28, which for people listening in, you know, we announced at the beginning of January, we're like moving into the last chapter. So actually Imagine is closing down in a couple months, basically. But when we, when we started at 28, I remember, you know, one of the taglines for, you know, Richard Rohr's Center for Action and Contemplation is the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. Yeah. And I carry that energy and that vision with me into the church because I'm like, we're not here to keep fighting the old. We're here to create something new. And a part of that was, yes, there's, you know, wisdom and there's, you know, spiritual maturity there, hopefully. But also a part of that is just me, like, I'm not going to spend my life responding to antagonistic emails on Monday morning. <laughs> Because I don't But it's so care. fun, Kevin. Like, I, it's so I, fun. Why not? Not for me. Don't you line them <laughs> up and just be this, like. This is this is where the, the wisdom of Enneagram comes in. I'm an Enneagram five. That energy to do that, I'm like, I'm like, one, even if I wanted to do it, which I don't, I'd probably forget because I'm not always good at emailing back. <laughs> so I'm like, point. it's just self-preservation. <laughs> this is, this is a good point. But I'm like, I, at that point, knew myself well enough to to be like, I can't do that. I knew if I have an evangelical core and a base in my church, I'm going to spend so much energy resist, like with resistance and fighting that, that it's oh, yeah. going to take away from one, my ability to just focus on the new, but also my ability to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. That doesn't bring me joy is arguing with an antagonistic oppositional energy when people aren't really open. I don't do that. You know, like, there's so much wisdom in the perennial tradition of, you know, there's a Zen saying, when the student's ready, the teacher appears. Right. And to me, like, you know, Jesus, those who have eyes to see, let them see. So for me, it's, you can recognize when people are ready oh, yeah. for the next thing. Like people who came into Imagine, they were either done with the old and maybe frustrated with it, or they were on the edge. Like that's how stages of consciousness work. You There's like an entering in, there's a solidifying, then there's you start exiting that stage and looking beyond without right. knowing it. And you can spot that and you can feel that from people. So my thing was, I'm giving my energy to those people who are ready, desiring, wanting, conscious or unconscious of seeing the next thing. I'm not trying to convince people who are still on the settlement to open themselves up to the new. Because honestly, I don't really care if they come or not. You know, like I care, I care about people and I want them to be whole and I want their relationships to be as healthy as possible. But if you don't want to see that, I just don't. I'm not the type who's I'm going to fight you and try to convince you because it doesn't work. No. And it just leaves the person right. in my position just pissed and frustrated. And it's you know? exhausting on both ends. Sucks. Um, <laughs> you, you said the, the perennial tradition, but would you define what you mean by the perennial tradition for those who are listening who maybe don't fully know what that means? Yeah, when, when me or other you know, wisdom teachers use that language of perennial tradition. It's this 
think about it like this thread that's sort of flowing throughout history, this river that's flowing throughout history of people who are the great knowers of God, the great ones who are known by God, these great mystics throughout history who are inside or outside of the Christian tradition. So this perennial tradition is just that legacy of voices of mystics and wisdom teachers that have been I think calling humanity forward and drawing humanity towards their deepest center from the time we can look back in, in general. So some of those voices would be, you know, when you look back, you're looking at when people are quoting Meister Eckhart as like a medieval monastic monk, when people are contemporary quoting Thich Nhat Hanh as a Buddhist who passed away recently, yeah. nearby star, who's an inner spiritual teacher, Richard Rohr, who's a Catholic doing it, you know, it's, or when people are quoting Rumi, you know, Rumi right. is, another part of that perennial tradition of the great saints and knowers of God, regardless of their religious affiliation. So I, I, I don't see why you wouldn't want that to operate in like a conservative evangelical. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that, I think that was a funny thing where if I quoted Rumi in my sermons, like one, no one would fight me on that. Cause everyone loves Rumi, you know, like those well, quotes I, you see, cause yeah. he's, Right. No, it's no, more no. like Everyone a loves... poet in people's minds, you know? Totally. No, he's like a poet and a mystic and they don't see him as like a clergy or a religious person, which he wasn't a clergy, but it's like, I'm giving people the perennial tradition without telling them it. So if I'm quoting Thich Nhat Hanh, or I don't know if I ever quoted him in a sermon, or I'm quoting Rumi in a sermon, or we're reading a Rumi poem, or we're reading some other poem, it's like, or Hafiz, like some great Sufi mystics, for example. It's like, I'm giving them the perennial tradition without the label. So they don't have to fight and wrestle with the label of whether or not I can actually let this in. It's like, well, without giving you a label, I'm just giving you the substance. It's the substance of God, where regardless of where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. So yeah. as in a community, that's what I would give to people when, when I would quote or read stuff yeah. or whatever. Yeah, truth is truth, no matter where you find it. Um, okay, your book is called the making of a mystic. So what is, what is a mystic? Can you define that mm. for our listeners? Like, and then what is contemplation when you're done? <clears throat> okay. A mystic, you know, there's, there's technical ways of saying this and then there's like poetic ways of saying this and gives both. I would say eh, <laughs> the mystic is a person who, who can live with no resistance. A mystic is a person who can embody pure acceptance. You know, the, the mystic is the one who knows that death is the key to life. And I think a big thing is the mystic is the one who doesn't hold on to anything because experientially they know they are being held by everything. So they don't hold on to boundaries. They don't hold on to beliefs, which we can get into. You know, the mystic knows you are not your beliefs. You are this deeper self that has beliefs, but also is not those beliefs. Um, the mystic is the one who's discovered and experientially and directly realized for themselves these deep paradoxes of, you know, everything is nothing. And then in nothingness, you find everything, right? It's like the mystic knows there's this subtle, center point of pure emptiness but also that emptiness is actually a great fullness you know and, and, and on a simple level the mystic is simply the one who who knows god and who also knows that to know god is actually to be known by god and that to love god is actually to be loved by god so you know when when people listen to roar talk about mysticism you know he would say i think on a really practical level for people 
Mysticism is anytime you move from religion as a belief and a belonging system to a transformational experience. Mm. So we're moving from arguing over the menu to actually tasting the meal for ourselves. We're moving from, you know, talking about the distinctions in a, these minuscule ways between our beliefs to an actual direct immediate knowing and experience of spirit. So the movement to the mystical as a whole is people just moving towards the experiential, but the mystics for me are those unique figures in the perennial tradition historically who seem to have a little bit of, they're a little bit more on the, on the inside of that kind of simple, everything is found in the nothingness of, and if you can breathe deep enough and be present enough, somehow it all unfolds for you. And that's why they, that's why Rumi has these great quotes and mm -hmm. all the mystics have these profound things because they're saying things out of what they've seen. And mystics are great seers. They've seen things other people haven't seen, not because they're better, but perhaps just because they're present and paying attention, you know, yeah. and, and more and awake and aware. So, yeah, I'll, I'll say that. I'll say that for now, but the, accept, the, the acceptance, the no resistance for me is a big thing of being able to feel that energy of people. And then contemplation within that, because whenever you and I talk, which is quite often, you always... <laughs> well, it's usually, usually at like me reaching out, you know, Phil's like, I have like on the mainland, like two of my, you know, two, like two really great friends and I just call them. They're the only people I call, basically. <laughs> if you look at my phone, like it's my wife and just them too. So, you know, it's like, oh, I have a little bit of time. I have 15 minutes. I'm going to call. So I'll answer talk, and be like, just I so have, you know, I'm always reaching out. I'm like, I got six minutes and 47 seconds before my next Perfect, meeting starts. Dude, that's Perfect. all I need. I am always going to call and make a couple inappropriate jokes and just hang up <laughs> this one, those, That's for my entertainment. I'm going to be honest. It's not about you. Those moments are about me. <laughs> um, but whenever we do talk, which again is quite often, but usually me reaching out, but <laughs> you, when you describe your practice, like your spiritual practice, you always describe it as silence or going up onto the mountain or solitude or the quiet. And so you have like this whole thing that you regularly enter into. Even when I was working on a project recently, you're like, Phil, in the early morning hours, have your silence be centered, give your energy to the thing right there. Like you have, like, tell me about your practice. Like, cause it's contemplation is your silence. So explain it. Yeah, it's funny. I, I just did, you know, the, the, this, this podcast called the inverse podcast with Drew Hart and this guy named Jared McKenna. He's kind of like a, from my perspective, he's like a Shane Claiborne from Australia. Okay. You know, I say that as a compliment, you know, he's a great guy. And they, it was like sort of like a last minute thing and it's a great podcast. So I was happy to be on, but I, they like, I had to prepare like a part of it was like a small Bible study because they do it live mm. with like their Patreon people. Interesting. So I was like, dang, this is a short notice. And I got to prepare stuff. It's not just an interview. And we, when we were talking, we're talking about the scriptures and I did this little thing and I was, I told them, I said, you know, I don't read the Bible devotionally. And I haven't, like, from my from my own thing, like, for I don't even know how long since I have ten years, maybe. Which is amazing because you've been preaching this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 
I broke some of the rules of when the preachers tell you, don't just read your Bible to preach, you know, you have to read it. I'm like, no, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But but, but what they're, because, you know, the wisdom of what they're saying is like, because they're saying you need to be connected with God. Yes. You know, you need to be in that. I'm like, the Bible for me has never connected me with God. Hmm. The Bible is is initiating me into the story. The Bible is helping me get to know the concrete Jesus. But the Bible for me has never, ever really felt like a mediating presence between me and the divine. Because that you hear in the book, my experience from my foundation of my faith was direct, immediate experience of spirit. And then after I got the Bible, so for me, the Bible never had that role of like, when I'm doing devotions, I just connected with God. I'm like, no, I just took an information about the story. So first of all, that is a part of the background. So, you know, contemplation, silence, and solitude, for me, my practice is basically silence. And what I call a slow, loving dialogue with God. I get some of that language from James Finley, who's also at the Center for Action and Contemplation. But what is happening in contemplation? What is happening in silence for me, like on a practical level? One, contemplation is the conscious experience of my true self. So I am not just believing, I am actually experiencing and actualizing and realizing and knowing my true self in that moment. This self that, is, that knows experientially it is not its ego. So that's one of the things that happens in silence is you actually experientially know there's distance between you and your ego. So again, you're like, I, this capital I is over here and this small I is over there of my ego identity and the things that I do. And that space between this larger self in Christ and then this other smaller self that runs around and does a bunch of activity is so important because you can't think or believe your way beyond your ego. You have to actually transcend it and let go of it and overcome it. And to me, contemplation and silence one of the things it is, is it is a knowing for yourself that I'm not that thing over there. And it's also knowing I am not my thoughts. My thoughts are over there. I am not my emotions. My emotions are over there. Whatever this great self is, is before, beyond, and beneath anything that I'm saying or doing, or even believing my beliefs are over there too. You know, those beliefs aren't defining this great sense of a self. And Mm. so the wisdom of the desert fathers and mothers early on, the wisdom when people have heard someone like a Henry Nouwen talk about it or these great mystics is you have to consistently go to that place intentionally in order to live from that place organically in the rest of your life. Because the pull of everyday life and our errands and our the way another text message spikes our like adrenaline or we have to deal with that, the pull of that is so strong that we need these places to consistently retreat to, to collapse into, to remember on a bodily level, I am this over here. And the more I go there, like intentionally, the more I will naturally start to become that and live from there in the rest of my life. So it's, I'm here with people talking, creating, writing, but I'm still up. My heart is up there on the mountains, metaphorically speaking with God. So it's like, I'm here, but I'm not taking the PR of, you know, my podcast too seriously. I'm not so wrapped up in 
whatever success or or lack of success I'm getting in this arena, this is all an offering because the conclusion's already been given to me up there and it's, hey, it's already okay. And now we can return and I'm not doing things out of compulsion. I'm not doing things out of a need to try to get something I don't have. It's just, I come down from those places. I'm like, what do I want to do now? What do I want to give? What, what wants to give itself out of there? So I can say some more specifics if you're interested, but you know, that's a little glimpse of why it's important. Yeah. What would you say to somebody who's listening to this and who's like, because you could hear like all the examples that you gave, you know, Richard Rohr, like Rumi, whatever. And the way that you're talking about this, and it might feel, I could see how to somebody it might feel like, well, what about me? Like, well, how am I supposed to live this out? Or what does this mean for me? What would you say to Mm. that person? Like, what's the encouragement? Is there an encouragement you could give to people? Like, can anyone be a mystic? You know what I mean? Can anyone do these practices? Or what, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I think anyone can move towards the mystical. And the way I define mystics, I think there's some unique people historically who I would who I would give that term to, you know, but the move towards the mystical and the experiential, can anybody be more free? This is what we want, right? Who cares about being called a mystic? Can people become more free? Absolutely. Can people let go of the need to control outcomes more? Absolutely. Right. This is the fruit of it. Um, So. I'll, I'll give the bad news first and the good news. You know, I talked to a, a guy in, in our church a while, years ago. And as we were talking about things like this, I started talking about silence. I said, look, I said, if you commit to a practice of silence, say 20 minutes a day, three to four days a week, in five years, you'll start to get it. <laughs> That's the bad news, right? Because it takes time that's why they're spiritual practices and disciplines right silence is a discipline i've had a practice of silence for like 20 years and i still have resistance going into it because i'm like i could just do things that don't require whatever that requires of me which is funny because that actually requires nothing that's the problem Mm. everything else requires stuff from me i don't know it requires a death i think no it requires no no i'm saying but that's no it's the it requires nothing because if someone were to ask me in silence what are you doing i would say nothing exactly right, right. i'm not doing anything that's what's hard but it's, it's amazing there's a bunch of things required from us like letting go and death like you said yes. jen that allows us to do nothing right, right. so that that's the challenge right so want to live organically I, from that place that you're describing that centered released i mean dude 20 years is a scratch yes. on the surface. In silence, that. it does nothing. In silence, you're doing nothing. But what's funny is that nothing will cost you everything. Yeah. Right? It's the interesting part of the journey. But I think the practical part of it is one of the, right? We, we can talk about community and relationships and vulnerability. We can talk about our action and what we're giving and how we're contributing to healing and liberation in the world. But one of the most important, if not the most important, dynamic in the spiritual journey and growth and waking up is what are the practices and the spaces that actually tether you to the ground of grace what actually leads you to this deep union with spirit what allows you to experience god and your true self which always happens simultaneously what are the things that help you get there Right, Roar and the Buddhists would say, you know, spiritual practices are fingers pointing to the moon. 
the fingers aren't the point. They are pointing. The moon is the point. The moon is union. The moon, the moon is the emptiness, which is a fullness, the light, the grace, right? That's what we want. That's what changes us. That's where life is found. And so I just know people in my life, and I'm a practical person. I'm not an idealist. I'm like, I know people, I'm like, because they're ADD, because they're this or that. You know, I say that like jokingly. I'm not saying they're diagnosed as ADD, but they're just all over the place and they're more a little more towards that inner chaotic and not chaotic, but busy energy. I'm like, they're not gonna sit in silence the way I have. And that's okay. I'm like, they're just not going to do that. But I'm like, but what for that person? helps allow them to be open-hearted, open-minded and aligned with their body. Cause that's what presence is, is when those things are open and aligned. What allows them to do that? Oh, well, maybe it's a walk around the back bay in Costa Mesa, for example, I don't know if you've ever been there. Or run, <laughs> perhaps. Or, or yeah, <sighs> any practice, cause anything that helps sort of still the monkey mind, anything that allows them, like, I think for some people who have more, energetic you know personalities where it's harder to slow down i think the physical activity actually helps quiet their oh, yeah. mind and, and their heart and, and align their body so for that person sitting down might might feel like there's more barriers towards god yeah the movement of the body can help actually align you because just that little bit of occupying of physical energy will help align things so yeah. i guess that's the thing anybody can move towards the mystical but it's what are the consistent practices that allow you to taste and know and be present yourself and for example when like 10 years ago or I've, I don't even know longer than that at one point in my journey I would spend 20 minutes in silence but I would listen to Gregorian chants in my headphones which yeah. is like in Latin for people that make I don't understand what they're saying it's like ancient like what you would hear in a mass right but for some reason that those chants were like this enchanting rhythmic thing that helped me feel connected you know to a larger tradition of you know monastics throughout history and my own individual journey and that's weird but that's what connected me I don't really care what it is if someone yeah. hangs upside down they're like the blood pressure in my head helps slow my mind I'm like cool get some moon boots and go do that for 10 minutes until you can before it gives you a headache I know I always but love hearing where how people connect to God in different ways I mean I feel like it really is so unique to each person, you know? Mm. And I love getting in conversations with people about that. And especially people who I feel like are really in tune with the spirit. And yeah, it's just interesting because it works differently for, for everybody. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Which that's is, the, that's the, that's a part of the exciting thing is getting to know our own like bio rhythms and our own makeup to be like, this is, Oh, that, that 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 person said was prescriptive no that was their journey hmm. and that's how they did that mine's totally different i could never do that right it's like working out i hate group workout classes i hate them i don't want a coach pumping me up i don't want somebody trying to inspire me to like, kevin you can push harder i'm like no thank you i'm fine right here <laughs> i have a pain threshold of a 6.5 and you're trying to get me to go to eight and i don't want to go there let me okay. go home and no one's yelling at me i on the other hand Feels like, like hurt me <laughs> Yell at me. Well, there's, <laughs> there's a pain threshold from one to 10. My max is 6.5. Phil's is 17. We're very different people. It's fascinating. I actually feel bad about myself when the coach isn't yelling at me. I'm like, what? <laughs> what? Um, but I will say that the, the thing beneath that, Jen, of what we're saying is 
regardless of what the fingers pointing to the moon are, regardless of the practice, there is no getting around the simplicity and the consistency of doing that. That's what it is, you know, like if, if that's a natural part of your life, you know, three to four times a week, five, whatever it is, five times a week, here's this 20 minute thing that is truly transformative. When you're looking at real transformation, when you're looking at real waking up, when you're looking at actual rewiring of consciousness and change and not just believing and thinking new things, which doesn't really change us. Um, mm. There is no, it's like with working out, you know, it was like, what's the secret? It's like, dude, just eat clean and work out. Just show right? up. There's no easy, <laughs> you want the easy, you're not going to give us like the three steps right now to becoming a mystic. <laughs> it's like, you know, I, I feel like people, sometimes it can appear to me that people, let's say when it comes to like spirituality, they're always looking for this secret magical cocktail to like get over the edge. It's like, no, it's transcendental meditation and blue algae these years. No, 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 it's not. It's, it's turmeric and it's, you know, sound baths and this or that. And, and Christians have their own version of that too. You know, it's like, I go to a big conference one night and that's going to do it. No, I go to this other thing. It's, no, there's no, there's no substitute like in a marriage and any real union of consistent, open-hearted, intimate spaces with love. And that's what those things are. And that's, that's the, the commitment is the experience of that, not what the commitment looks like for our lives. There's a lot of freedom. We have to choose how that looks. Yeah. There's a lot of spiritual experiences without the integrated wisdom in it. It's like an endless array of experiences that never actually integrate into your body and become a wisdom that you live from. Absolutely. Yeah. It's why people could show up to your church for 10 years and never actually be any different. They just listen to the same thing or the new things. And they're like, I'm a part of your movement because I'm listening to you talk about it. But if they never mm. integrate it and they never live from the wisdom. It's mm. like presence. I mean, it kind of, it's, I mean, it's, you could do this across the board with so many things, but even as we're talking, we've been talking a lot about parenting. So that's on my mind. It's the same thing. Like as we're talking about like ways that we teach our kids about stuff and ways that we, you know, how do you raise a kid to be a certain kind of thing? It's like without that presence in that time and without you actually embodying all those things that you want them to be like, it's, there's, there aren't shortcuts for these things. Mm. So, yeah. Mm. And I, and that the journey from learning to living to from believing to becoming from information to integration right there. That's how you can tell I've been a pastor forever of why I love like alliteration. Yeah, a bunch of little, bunch of little alliteration oh, yeah. memorized. <laughs> My mind is like conditioned to think in those ways. It's so five, weird. It's like, five P's. Uh, <laughs> um, but that movement, especially with the integration to me is one of the most mysterious, one of the most not fully understood and one of the most frustrating things for people. Cause I know people want to change. And I, yeah. and I care about that. And it's frustrating when you think you've had this, you know, epiphany moment as if everything just fixed, was fixed for you in one deliver deliverance night or something like the pastor told you it was going to be, which is right. so dangerous. Um, and then the next Friday, things are the same and it's frustrating. And I, I have, there's a chapter in the book called Peaks and Paths. Mm -hmm. And I start off, there's a story about, this kid who said that while he was on LSD or acid, he discovered like the meaning of life. 
right? Which happens to a lot of people. Sure. So the next morning he woke up and he shared this like exciting and groundbreaking revelation with his friends. And so of course, like his friends are like, well, what is the meaning of life? And the kid thought for a second, he's like, I forgot. That's so good. (laughs) (laughs) And like, to me, that story expresses how a spiritual experience doesn't always translate into a spiritual life. Yeah. That is the real journey. And that's why that, that chapter peaks and paths is whatever we see on the peak, right? These great moments of inspirations, great moments of revelation. You know, when people are like, let's say if they come from more evangelical charismatic settings, when they're raising their hands in worship and they're, they feel like, you know, that moment, like I can do any, I can tackle a bear right now if I want to, you know, nothing scares me. 6.5 threshold is going to take on a bear. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that's how, you know, it's powerful and deceiving. Cause even I thought that at the moment, <laughs> I think in that moment, something real can be happening for a person, but it's, it's a, it's like this peak experience where they're getting a glimpse of what's possible, but then they return. And it's, how does what I saw on the peak, transform into who I am on the path, right? That's the journey is how does the vision you get, get transformed and and alchemized into the values of who you are. And that also is the, is the mystery and power of contemplation and meditation and prayer is that which you've seen in those high moments of revelation starts to be more of a grounded reality in the consistent returning to that silent space with God. Yeah, you're not as high. It's not as euphoric in that moment. Right. But what you saw starts to somehow be knitted and woven into actually who you are. You know, that's why Ken Wilber would say about meditation and these things. He says, these temporary states need to become permanent traits. Mm. I love it. I would, te- yeah, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, and I see that from him and take it and take it. And that's why I would say, what you experience in that temporary space, we want, basically we want to become our permanent face. How do I become that? Yeah. Not just feel it. How do I actually become that in my life? Yeah. I like that you address that just because I think people are a lot of times wanting to go back to an experience that they had because it oh was euphoric and they want to recreate this moment maybe that they had with with the spirit and they, it it was like this, such a high, you know, and then because they're not having that same experience again, it's almost like, well, what's some, what's wrong with my faith. And even like, I think the freedom to go, Hey, as we're growing and we're evolving and our faith is growing, it isn't like this, this straight line, like the straight line up and to the right, like there's going to be, we grow, maybe it's two steps forward and maybe then it's a step back and we, we fall back into the old thing that we're trying to move forward from. And to me, there's a freedom in that, you know? Mm. And so I, I like, but I really appreciate you like addressing that, just that desire to, to want to almost return to the way that it was because it felt more warm and fuzzy or whatever. Totally. Can I build off that with a question? Psychedelics. Boom. Um. <laughs> well, I mean, it's in the subtitle. You mentioned it twice in this conversation. In the beginning, you had an experience directly with spirit that is it was it was too profound to have any kind of intermediary between. And mm. then we just talked about people wanting to return to these experiences. You talked about 
your friend in your chapter who's all, I forgot. Um, <laughs> well, there's also today an explosion of interest, renewed interest in psychedelics. Mm, um, totally. I mean, there's, I know in California with uh, ketamine therapy is a thing now for dealing with trauma treatment. And um, you can just sign up and go have a psychedelic experience with a doctor monitoring you and and that is the therapy. And then afterward, you can meet with a therapist and then talk about your psychedelic experience. Or um, there's just a big explosion of people wanting to experiment with some kind of spiritual encounter with psychedelics. Um, what do you, what's your take on all this? Mm. Well, I have a chapter, you know, to make more sense of my connection with it. I have a chapter in the book called Mushrooms and Missionaries. And it is like I open by telling this like Thomas Merton story where when Thomas Merton was young and he was like heading towards his awakening and he was starting to like sort of come alive. Thomas Merton, one of the great mystics of the 20th century, yeah. from my perspective, responsible for really reintroducing not just the church, but the West, which is audacious to say, to contemplation mm. and to this contemplative spirituality towards the non-dual, et cetera. And when he was getting closer to this experience, he there was a visiting Hindu monk named Mahaman Mahaman Brata Brahmachari, and so he was visiting and lecturing at like you know like Yale Divinity Schools or something, like one of those Ivy League schools I think. So Thomas Merton gets a hold of him. You know, it's like people getting a hold of a pastor after church or over a conference. Like, should I talk to him? No, nah, no, nah, go, go. He's open. Go, go, go now, <laughs> right, yeah, now. I'm Code red, code red. Oh, His bodyguard so looked away. His bodyguard looked away. <laughs> you coming too close? Boom, you got close. Like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and when he went to him and he asked him for guidance, what's so fascinating about that story is this Hindu monk didn't point him towards you know, the sacred texts of the Hindu tradition or some great monks from, from their legacy. He told him to read St. Augustine's Confessions and he told him to read Thomas Akempis' Imitation of Christ, right? Which is another earlier sort of, you know, wisdom kind of tradition thing. Yeah. And let's say those things are become a part of Thomas Merton's journey. They get integrated somehow. And then he eventually moves towards this experience of enlightenment and awakening. Now he's this great Catholic mystic. Well, what's funny about that is I don't think in that Hindu monk's job description was being a missionary for Christ. But that's exactly what he was. Absolutely. You know, now granted, you know, for the sake of where we're at now and more and more people waking up to the realities of colonialism and racism and white supremacy, let's just suspend the whole missionary is, is entangled within Eurocentric white supremacist western dominating violence and oppressive systems let's, just, let's, yeah, let's, just, let's just try to suspend <laughs> let's, that yeah. let's try let's just let's suspend that for a second assume we're all aware of that hopefully disentangling in our own ways but the healthy part of that term missionary for me is what's well, pointing someone further towards christ okay that's a good thing and so in the same way i think that hindu monk was a missionary for christ in thomas merton's life mushrooms were a missionary for me in my own life because when i was doing them i always sensed the mushroom saying to me yes but keep going mm, like, like it's not this. I think to, yeah it, no, it's like it's yes 
you're getting a glimpse. Like when we talked about the peak and the path, you're getting a glimpse. There's all this wisdom. There's this vision. There's this interconnection. There's this presence. Like it, for me, it was the only time I really felt at peace in my life. So there's, oh, the mind, to me, it was like, oh, the mind and the heart has the capacity to experience peace. But wow. that moment is a temporary experience yeah. when I go back to my regular life and I'm not at peace, but it shows me it's possible. Mm. And real freedom comes from being able to get there without being able to take anything. Cause then it's just, I'm content. It's contingent upon that. It's and now I'm enslaved to that thing. And I just sense they were like, you're yes, there's something real here, but it's pointing, it's pointing beyond itself to something further it was like mushrooms for me were a signpost pointing me to a future I couldn't see they were pointing me to a freedom I desired but wasn't sure even existed you know I wasn't in youth groups I didn't have that kind of thought and guidance at the time sure and it was pointing me towards a truth I hoped for but wasn't guaranteed so they gave me a glimpse of the goal it's just I didn't know what the goal was or how to get there but I felt like they kept saying go further um so that was that's what it was for, for me was that was the experience of of mushrooms for me and you know I tell another story more mushrooms this is another chapter more mushrooms in the most important moment of my life because eventually on mushrooms I was when I had <clears throat> excuse me this direct <laughs> immediate experience this actual spontaneous awakening moment with God it was to the point where it was almost physical, like almost physically, I could feel light and love being like infused into my life. Mm. And it was my primary experience of faith wasn't here's a belief system, wasn't here's a religious tradition. It was a universal affirmation and this, this cosmic yes to my life this yes in love, this overall <clears throat> feeling enveloped by light and love. So I, that affects me to this day of how I think about beliefs and traditions. Because I tell people I had the experience before any dogma. Mm -hmm. I had the awakening moment before any, do you believe this about G? I had the awakening before anyone said anything about atonement theories, right? To me, it was what? just this, actu this actual- The no, atonement that's theories, didn't, that's not what got you? <laughs> It, but that's what's crazy is going to a Bible college or other, you know, later on, it was like, oh, you're saying you have to believe this or say this. And then you cross over this sort of chasm when for me, there was never a chasm. It just ended up being this direct marriage from the very beginning. So that affects how I think about beliefs and concepts when I'm in Bible college and they're saying this, you know, uh -huh. I can remember being 24, maybe. And maybe right when I was, I finished Bible college at 24 and I was sitting in the parking lot of the school and I had a journal and the journal, one side said reality and one side said concepts. And it was like the idea of like, you know, when you cross over the cross helps you go from one side to the other. And I remember thinking something like more like the concepts just help you personally mm. make the leap to experience that, which is already true. There's no space that you're overcoming it's just you're overcoming the illusion that there was any space in the first place maybe human beings need rituals and need these beliefs to actually experience and know that which is already true and if that's the case fine these are helpful for a while but honestly like i've known people who don't believe 
who aren't Christians who are doing more of the Christ journey than people who have the beliefs that aren't actually waking up. You know, what do you do with that? And that was true mm. of my own story. That's fascinating. What would you say to people who are looking to experiment with those things today? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a good question. And it's an interesting question for me. Um because like, you know, for some of the podcasts I reached out to, to be on who I sensed are like sort of more evangelical ish, you know what I'm saying? I like prefaced it with like, Hey, I just want you to know, like, I'm not like some, like, I'm not like some big proponent or person who's like leading people into this now, you know, I'm not like a psychedelics guide who is leading people through these experience or whatever. So what I know is the real journey always happens after the experience. That's, that's a guiding thing for me. The real work that extends beyond this religious experience comes from the consistent practices that enable you to return and remain in spirit like we were talking about. right? The real work is whether or not you're going to face your own shadow and feel those painful feelings as they arise. right? The real work is confronting and naming and letting go of all the illusions you believe. The real work is surrendering all of your expectations on life. And I really mean all when I say that, right? The real work is having the courage to heal the deep wounds within. Like that's the real letting go. And in the end, for most people, the psychedelic trip can become a moment, momentary door to a great party. But for me, they were this wise guide pointing me beyond themselves to the ultimate celebration in God, in spirit, in Christ. So, you know, do I recommend them to people as like a prescriptive thing? No. But do I also deny, do I also act like they're evil and they can only produce bad things in the world? Of course not. Look at my experience. You know, I'm not like a heavy proponent of them. I'm also not this outspoken antagonistic force against them. So I think it, it doesn't surprise me that there's all of this new research that's happening right. you know, about it and that people have positive experiences. I also know the majority of people that I did psychedelics with are not these great gurus and advocates for justice and voices of compassion because when you grow up getting high like I did all the time, you're like, most people just want to feel groovy, man. <laughs> you know, most people just want to get high. And I think if, if someone was doing that along with being vulnerable, along with shadow work, along with therapy, along with all these other things, that to me, if it's integrated into a whole, I feel differently about that. But when someone's not doing the real work and they just want to go do ketamine experiences and psilocybin experiences, and now I'm like, all right, like, it's, it's just another way for the ego to disguise its desire to do what it wants in, the, in religious or spiritual activity, which is true for anything else too. But so I'm sort of ambivalent of like, I think it doesn't surprise me there's research that has positive effects. And there's also like, in the end, I'm like, if you're not doing the real work, like this, this ain't for some people who are super into it right now, I'm like, this ain't the key to life. Like you think it is, you know, it ain't going to do it. Only the real work does that. Yeah. Or just a way to deal with pain. Yeah. Just another way to deal with pain. 
Yeah, so I am like, it's very contextual. My conversation with individuals will be very different based on how I know them and what I see happening. Mm-hmm. All right, that leads to our next question. What are you seeing right now? What am I seeing? What are you seeing? Like when you look around, what what's happening right now in the world? Like what do you sense? What are you seeing? Like in the spiritual, spiritual landscape? Spiritual landscape and mm. just, I mean, through all the transitions obviously that we've been going through in the last several years all the the pain and the stuff but what do you i don't know just curious i think i'm seeing like specifically for people who have come up through the church and being in congregational life and i'm still pastoring you know our church right now into this last season i think whatever we were seeing before the pandemic of post-church post-christianity post-congregational life spiritual but not religious right there's many different ways to get at people who are still desiring something real but are less and less interested in seeing this the the church as the center as the holding together center for that whatever trends we saw that before have been sped up a lot during this process you know i'm sure you guys have seen that that oh yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. significant and i think there are some people who will continue to be a part of congregations and that's great and i hope to continue to support and love and you know preach and be a part of that you know i love the church and so for the people who do that i think it's great and i think what we need there is more and more wider inclusive and hopeful versions of the faith you know and i hope to be a part of helping contribute to that as we move into the future but i also know this is my where i'm not an idealist and i and i don't I'm the type of person where I let other people be in the driver's seat of their own life. Hmm. I don't need people to, I just read that from like Cornell West somewhere like that phrase, you know, and I'm like, that's such a good way of even how I think how we approached imagine. Like I let other people be in the driver's seat of their own life. So there's some people who are not going to go back to Mm -hmm. congregation. A lot of people. They're not. A lot. And they're Christians. Yep. And they want to continue to follow Jesus and they want to continue to, experience the depth of the spiritual path right that to me i'm also okay with that i'm fine with that i'm not mad at those people i don't need them to be in conventional forms of church so i think one of the trends that's particularly interesting or relevant relevant to us right now and where we are and a lot of other people who are in similar places is there is this new space, this, this widening space that's opened up for those people to ask, what does it mean to be on this path and grow and evolve and change, even as I continue to desire following Jesus without my traditional form of church? And with people like yourselves and like, like me and many other people we know, it's what does it mean to lead and guide and pastor people into the substance of a life with Christ without the forms of church that we have given ourselves to for a long time because those people who aren't going back to church still need guides. Yep. Still need teachers, still need support, still need to be reminded of who they are. Still need people to, to love them through the hard times, which is like, it's this funny thing of what does it mean to have the, to continue to lead with the substance of Christ without the structures that we have been used to? What does it mean to a lot to keep guiding people into the flow 
of God without the form that they're used to. And people are asking those questions consciously and unconsciously. And I think there's a trend of people, leaders moving from a post-congregational life to pastoring and guiding with the same heart, with the same substance, with the same depth of Christ, just without the one, this is a local church that holds that together. You know, so I think to me, there's so much going on, but that's something I see that I'm particularly interested in because it's, that is something that is a trend that will continue to increase from my perspective. I agree. What's giving you hope right now? I mean, one, as I prepare this book, I honestly am just like having so much fun doing podcasts like this with people. Because on a personal, I'll say this on a personal level, when you step into possibilities that you always sensed were there, but never knew with certainty, it's powerful. Because what's happening is you're seeing flesh and blood on the spirit that you've always known is there with you. You're like, I'm, an, I, I'm going to do that one day, or I want to do it. Even before starting a church, like I would see people preach, and I'd be like, I, I can do that, and I want to do that. And when you start doing it, you're like, yeah, this is, it's not about arrogance. It's about the recognition of what we have to give to the world. Then you start preaching, you're like, I knew I could do this. Mm-hmm. This is sick. I love it. It appears to bring life to people. <laughs> what? It's amazing. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. that's great. And I feel a a new sense of that in my life right now through the writing and through, you know, whatever else is coming. So I think on a personal level, when you start to see something happen, you sense what's possible for a long time. It's just powerful and it's amazing. And when you stop long enough to not just do it, but to appreciate it, you're like, this is special. You know, this is awesome. And I don't take these moments with people like you or other people who bring me on for granted because they're, they're a part of, they're an important part of this next step of my life. So that's personal. And man, what else brings me hope when I look around? And we know you're a realist, so this is a big question for you. Oh man. I mean, there's, there's, there's definitely things I can see where like my default response is like, can anybody just shut up? <laughs> like when I just that's my that's my bad default response when I just see too much going on that's my go-to so I'm a my default responses are very bad um we don't need to label there them. are there are there are times when I'm still see pastors who are still committed to their congregations and I'm like wow through the pandemic that's really hard mm-hmm. that's so tough and I'm so not in that place right now. And my life's transitioning into a different role. But when I see that, I'm like, that guy's through the pandemic and rebuilding after and still being faithful. Like, as I think about it right now, that is not easy. No. No, and that is special. Right. And I have a lot of respect for people doing that, you know? And, you know, and also there's a simplicity of hope or joy of like, for no, I told Phil this for no reason. My daughter Michaela, who's five, just ran, just swam sixty laps in our pool. What? At an unprompted, out of nowhere, she just kept swimming for like fifty minutes straight, and I've never seen that. And you're like, wow, to get glimpses of greatness from your kids. And my son's, you know, three and a half. 
and he keeps telling me, you know, when I get big, I want to have a mustache and eat spicy foods and be strong like you. You know, that's what I do. Indeed. <laughs> Even I don't have a mustache. That's how but I think like of to you. See, just to see, <laughs> to see him start to become a little person. You know, we're in such different stages of our parenting journey, but to see when you cro- he crosses over that threshold of talking, and the communication so much, which means our connecting becomes more complex mm-hmm. and to me deeper yeah. and unique. Those, those, my wife, Christine is such, I, I'm, I'm not joking. Virtually every day, our kids are five. My oldest is five. Every day, Christine's like, how amazing are the kids? Every day when they go down. And I'm like, I believe that, but they just went down. I need like 45 <laughs> minutes to rest. And then I can feel that. Just give me a sec. Right. Yeah. She's an incredible. But I mean, wife. that's like, the, for me, you know, the joy there. And, you know, even right now, my wife's in another room on a call like this, coaching leaders who have been through, who are burnt out and have dealt with trauma, coaching them through that. And I'm here doing this. So I'm like, what's amazing and hopeful is we, I believe as the forms change, the flow of who we are and what the spirit's calling us into is the same. Yeah. yeah. So I might transition out of imagine at some level is like, well, okay. That it was hard. Don't get me wrong. I've done all the grief stuff and I've felt that you give 10 years of your life. It's, mm. it's a lot, you know, lot. Yeah. but at the same time, you're like, I'm still doing the same thing. Same I'm thing. still yep. saying the same it's the next step. It's just the next step. Yeah, it is. And it's just, you know, the, the structure, the form, the thing that holds it together looks different, but the heart that's beating within it, the spirit mm. that's animating and holding together everything is the same. Oh, yep. yeah. And that to me feels like what's hopeful is we get to continue to just be us and to trust that that's good in this world. And I believe that, you know, with where I'm going. So. It is. It is. Oh, it's beautiful, Kev. It is. And we're so excited about your book coming out. Can you tell people where to find you? Yeah, well, The Making of a Mystic coming out May 31st, you know, yep. from since you're I don't know what physical local retailers it'll be at, but I obviously you can get it on Amazon. It's not up for pre-order yet. The best way to follow up with that and just pay attention is probably on my Instagram, like at Kevin Sweeney one, as I'm updating about the book, you can, all the other different podcasts I'm on leading up to it. Um, the things that are, uh, that come out are about the book, book release parties that I'm planning to do. So if you follow me there, you can stay in tune and, yeah, for me, the book is, it's taking the mystical, the mystic and mysticism out of what feels like an abstract and conceptual and, and strange space into, you know, on a Tuesday afternoon, you know what it's like to be a mystic? It means getting that unexpected criticism and refusing to compartmentalize it or deny it. And saying, I'm just going to spend this afternoon just sitting in my room, looking out a window and just feeling this instead of denying it. That's, that's the unromantic, unsexy part of being a mystic is it's about embracing the universe for exactly what it is in any moment, good or bad, and taking it in and trusting when we do that, that which we feel like is going to kill us or end us. It's actually not. And the power of it will be exhausted through the spirit that holds it together. And then we can keep going. So I want to ground all of the cosmic stuff of the mystic into the concreteness of our everyday life. Brilliant. Great. Boom. Boom. It's so good to have you. Love you guys. Me too, brother. So grateful for you guys. Yeah, I know. We all, uh, I, I just always believe there's more life ahead. 
I believe that for myself or my family. I believe that, you know, for you guys and for your kids and for the people who are in those different journeys, whether it's leading or growing into the future, rethinking a lot of things, we'll just keep going. Cause I just believe when we do the real work along the way, there's always, always more life. And that's the found for me, one of the foundational things in the inner set in the energetic signature of Christ and the witness of the scriptures is there's always resurrection. There's always more life. And that to me is one of the things that, you know, is why I'm a Christian. So, yep. Appreciate this time. Keep going, baby. Keep going. Okay. Thanks guys. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to check out our website, philandjenwood.com for coaching resources and events. And if you enjoyed this, feel free to subscribe. You can even leave a review. Keep going. See you next time.